Hello and welcome to Kiwi Rider Podcast, New Zealand's premier motorcycling podcast made by Kiwi Riders for Kiwi Riders. My name's Ray here and flying solo this week, but taking you once again all the way back to Shiny Side Up 2020, where we had one of our Shiny Side Up gurus, Brett Tax, breaking down motorcycling preconceptions. What do you think isn't necessarily what's true? Remember this talk was recorded live on site at the 4th of 4 Shiny Side at Bike Fest events in the lounge so there is a bit of background noise and uh, references to the time and day. Without further ado let's dive straight into that conversation with Brent Tax. Uh, my name is Brent Tax, I'm from uh, the United States, you can tell by my funny accent. Uh, I am here because I have a very unique experience and a very unique training field. I train full-time as a motorcycle instructor, I've been doing it for over 20 years. But not just that, I'm one of the few people in the States that does on-road training, similar to what you guys have here, except I run 40-hour programs with the military, with police. I also train instructors. The other thing that makes it unique is I'm very diverse as a motorcyclist. I train everything from road racing, and I've done all the, the different road racing schools that I study with uh, Lee and, and uh, Inetch and all those guys. Uh, they're all uh, fellow trainers. Uh, also, I train in the dirt. I do downrange training for combat training, and I do adventure training. Some of you may know that from the Motortrek series. The reason I bring that up is not to brag about my, my experience, that's unimportant. What's interesting is looking at the commonality between all of these different disciplines and what I end up training riders for in each discipline. Why do we make the mistakes and the errors that we make regardless of where we make that error? And what I'm gonna give you today is I'm gonna go over some, uh, some understanding about where our, our greatest risk is on the road, but also I'll give you some skill sets that you can apply today when you leave here and then I'm going to end up talking about some psychological aspects of us as riders because it turns out the biggest issue we have is what's in our heads it's not what's sitting on the seat and how we combat that and how we make that an asset to us rather than the thing that causes trouble I meant to do that by the way that's how that works <clears throat> to start off with is just thinking about where do we actually end up uh, dying on the roads. Where are motorcycles actually dying? And it turns out our biggest issue on the road is not the other driver. We like to believe that, but that's not the reality. The reality is we don't stay in our lane very well. That's what it boils down to. The majority of fatalities in the States, the majority of fatalities here in New Zealand are riders running off of their lane or out of their lane. So much so that in the States, now I live in the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon area, and it looks just like New Zealand on steroids. Uh, we're sitting in a subduction zone. We've got all kinds of mountains, we've got lowlands, we have twisty roads, and we like to die in the exact same place as you guys like to die. And just about the same number, 72% of our fatalities in our region last year were single vehicle, those motorcycles in a curve, no other vehicle involved, 72%. Now if you think about that, that means the rider's 100% in control. Because if it's tire pressure, that's on the rider. If it's lack of maintenance, that's on the rider. If they didn't see the gravel, that's on the rider. So we pretty much assume at 72%, it's them. The, when we look at the multi-vehicle uh, accidents, we're finding that there's also still a very good propensity that we like to run out of our lane. 32% of those fatalities were running out of the lane and hitting other vehicles. That's a lot of, of accents. If you get the chance to listen to Peter's chat uh, here today, you're gonna find out that the numbers here in New Zealand are very, very, very similar. So that's where we like to die. So here's what the solutions are. Uh, as we look through it, number one is we have to understand and have some ownership over where those accents have and what our, 
our, our ending result is out on the road. We have to understand this. And when we survey riders, what we found is we gave a whole list of why these accents, these multi-vehicle accents, so we're only talking about that, that small percentage, right? Eliminate the 72%. When we asked riders, who was at fault and why? And they would go, well, because the car driver was distracted on their cell phone, the car driver was drinking, the bike was drinking, the bike didn't have experience. They went through all these different reasons. All I did was break them down into two categories. Their fault, our fault. And these are what the numbers came up as. Now, the numbers behind me, the zero to three year number, you'll see is 53%. Riders with zero to three years experience said the other guy was at fault 53% of the time. The experienced riders with 11 plus years had 69%, and the ones in the middle split the difference. So it turns out the more experience you have, the more likely you are to blame the other guy. Here's the problem. It's not the truth. When we looked at who was at fault, we found in Washington State, 18% of the fault was the other driver in a multi-vehicle accident. 20% in Oregon, 30% was uh, Wisconsin, you'll find if you listen to Peter's chat, those numbers are very similar to here in New Zealand. We like to run into cars. Generally, we like the backs of cars. So we like to run into the backs of them pretty uh, quite often if we're not running out of our lane and then hitting them in the front. Those are the two issues we have. We run wide and we don't stop. So let me give you a few solutions for that. This one is not taught in the bronze course, it is not taught in the silver course, and it is not taught in the gold course. So I'm gonna give you a new way to think about the way to go through corners. And this is gonna be talking about, first of all, how we look and dissect the corner. First part is, we have a tendency to think about the apex and what apex we should have, and we need a late apex. Does this all found, sound familiar? All right, so set up the outside, pick a late apex, and then go through the corner. The problem is, how many corners, and this is, I'm not actually asking for an answer, so this is just one of those questions, right? I already know it. How many, how many corners have we gone through as motorcyclists that we could not see the exit of the corner? We have never been through that corner before, and we may never see that corner again. And there's a lot of them. And the more you travel, the more this is true. You cannot select an apex if you don't know where the exit is. How do you pick the middle if you don't know where the two sides are? So I'm gonna tell you right now, the apex is a problem. It's a myth, it should not be taught in motorcycle education. Apex comes from racing. I know the racetrack, and I know the arc, and I know the corner. And even if I can't see the other side of the curve, there's somebody standing in the curve with a flag if there's a problem. They wave that yellow flag and they tell me, there's a problem, I need to change what I'm doing, change course. I can pick an apex because I'm just trying to pick the best line and I was just there a minute and a half ago. If I was slow, maybe it was a minute and 50 seconds ago. That's when the apexes come into play. It doesn't work for us. As street riders, we must focus on only the exit. We commit to only the exit. So our entry point is defined by where the exit is. So I end up holding the outside until I find the exit. That's my turn point that I can turn in and run the straight Christ or straight through, the byproduct of that is called the apex. So it is the last component of a corner, not the first. That's the thing that you look behind you and you go, oh, that was a late apex corner, or that was a mid apex corner. But it's the exit that drives it, period. Now to do that, I'm gonna give you something else you're not taught to do here. 
And that's called trail breaking. Now trail breaking is something that is often uh, related to, uh, to track and racing. And it is because when you do trail braking on the track, I can change the attitude of the motorcycle, I can compress the front end, steepen up my rake and trail, I can turn in quicker. I have, there's a lot of things I can do that trail braking gives me an advantage for. And on the street, we're thinking we shouldn't be in that big of a hurry. So I'm gonna redefine what I'm talking about when I say trail braking for street riders. Trail braking for street riders is not dragging my brake in the corner, my rear brake. And trail braking is not grabbing my brakes in the middle of the corner. Some of you refer to that as mid-corner braking. I refer to it as, oh shit, braking. I already screwed up, right? So the idea here with trail braking is that trail braking is any planned and deliberate deceleration past the turn point. Now the turn point I'm also gonna define for you because the turn point is when I change the radius of the curve to not follow the arc of the road. So that's when we turn in to make a straighter line to the exit. That's the turn point. So if you have a 360 degree curve that comes all the way back and around and all the way through, you might be 270 degrees through that curve before you even pick up your exit. If you come off the brakes and add throttle before you turn it in, you have not trailed brake even if you were carrying your brakes all the way through. Trail braking only means past that tip-in point. And trail braking is usually only for a very short period of time and it's used to help transfer load to increase our traction and increase the stability of the motorcycle. When we think about traction, <clears throat> we usually think about traction as being a one for one. I have 100 points of traction, 50 for cornering, I have 50 left over. Sound familiar? Problem is, that's not how it works. It's actually a, an area-based equation and it's not consistent, which means I'm running about 70% of my cornering maximum I still have about 70% of my braking, and that puts me right to threshold. What happens to our traction when we do braking and we add brakes? Does the front brake increase in its available traction or decrease? Quick stop. It increases, exactly. So why wouldn't it do the same thing if I'm trail braking into a corner? So what happens is, is the area, the volume of available traction, that, that traction coefficient increases. Now I'm not talking about the traction patch. Because if you think more tire on the road means more traction, that's also a myth. It's more about pounds per square inch. We can talk about that after the fact if anybody wants to have a discussion about that. I love traction and suspension. But the idea here is we're talking about the available traction, how many pounds per square inch we have. And because we've loaded forward, we've increased that amount of load. So that's one of the reasons why trail braking works. I'm loading that front tire going into the corner. Now think about this, if I'm mid-corner and I didn't change that and I'm at this level and I go for mid-corner braking, I have less traction than if I load that tire before I go into the corner. So what I'm doing is talking about extending our braking zone into the curve. So instead of finishing my brake before I tip in, I'm gonna to continue to carry the brakes. I do most of my braking before I enter the corner, just as you currently do. But instead of coming off the brakes, I'm gonna keep a couple fingers touching it, sometimes just enough to activate the light. So that if I come into the curve and it continues to tighten, all I have to do is add just the lightest amount of pressure to decrease speed. To tighten a curve, you only have two ways to tighten a curve. One, you press more. We're gonna talk about fear and why we crash, that's an issue. Right? You run out of ground clearance, you run out of traction, turns out that's not usually the issue. The issue is usually you turn out the gumption enough to press more to lean in. So one is to lean more. We know that doesn't work. The second thing is to slow down. For any given lean and any given speed, if I decrease the speed, I decrease the arc. So as I come into a corner, if I continue to slow, 
my bike continues to tighten up the radius without actually increasing lean. It gives me traction back, it gives me response time, and it always gives me reserve. I can break all the way to a stop and never run out. And this is why trail braking works so well for street riders. And I'm gonna show you uh, one of the more complex methods of street riding. Now the problem, of course, is if you're loading the front tire, what happens to the back? Exactly, if I'm loading forward, I'm offloading on the rear. So how do we compensate? One is, this is why I'm not a big rear brake, trail brake person. This is also why racers will often do almost 100%, or they'll do about 90% front brake on the trail braking because they get so much offload that there's really not as much on the back. On the street, it's not quite that extreme, or at least it shouldn't be. But when we go through and we think about how do I fix that problem then? When we add throttle, and suspension makes this happen, when I add throttle, what direction does the front suspension move? Up or down? Up, absolutely, right? Do we have a unanimous, the suspension moves? Up, excellent. So when I add throttle on, the, and what happens to the rear suspension? Does it extend or squat? Okay, so I'm gonna tell you that's wrong, I'm gonna ask one more time, ready? So, when I add throttle on, what happens to the rear suspension? Does it extend or does it squat? Okay, I had a mixed response. I'm gonna tell you squat's wrong and ask one more time. Ready, here goes. And last chance, when I add the throttle on, what happens to the rear suspension? Does it extend or does it squat? It extends, and some of you are still wrong. Now, let me explain why this works. It's called anti-squat geometry. This is built into every one of your motorcycles from the factory. This is also why it's important to have springs and preload set property or suspension, because that affects this as well. Anti-squat geometry is just what it sounds like. It's built into the bike so the bike does not squat while you're riding. Most of them have a positive squat geometry, which actually causes a light rise. What that means is that your rear tire wants to go faster than everything else, and what's in the way of the rear tire? Everything else, exactly, right? So every time you throttle, that back tire is trying to drive forward, but the motorcycle's in the way. Now you have an axle point here and you have a pivot point up on the bike here, your axle's down below. It drives forward. That leverage causes rise in the center of the motorcycle. The other thing you have is a torque effect from the chain drive system. And if any of you have driven a, an old shaft drive motorcycle, you know exactly how much torque there is when you add on and that back of that bike rises up. Now there is offloading to the back, and people talk about weight loading to the rear, and there is some of that, but the idea is the geometry of the motorcycle is enough to counteract that or become positive. This is why we don't screw with lowering bikes and overloading bikes, because you can actually put a reverse effect on this. But that anti-squat gives us ground clearance, puts tension into the drive system, and puts tension into the suspension so that you don't get a lot of movement while you're moving. It rises the bike up, maximum ground clearance. We're trail braking on the front, which gives us traction. And because the rear tire is pushing the motorcycle forward, what happens at the contact point? What happens to the traction? If the rear tire is pushing forward, do we get more or less pounds per square inch? We get more. So what I'm actually doing is taking that rear, that, that traction patch and decreasing and opening that back up because I'm putting power to the ground. So now I have no slack in my driveline. I have my suspension that's set up nice and high. I have all, lots of room for compression and movement. I've increased traction right at the turn-in point. I have full control of the bike. This is where trail, trail braking comes in to be a street strategy, not something that's, uh, that's taught here. <clears throat> this is what the most advanced level of trail braking looks like. Now, as I mentioned, trail braking can be anything from rear brake, front brake, both brakes, or 
It can be compression braking, which most of us do as a very gradual roll off, and we just sort of coast into the corner. All these qualify as trail braking, but they don't all have the same level of control and advantage is what I call blending of controls or an overlapping of, of control. What this is, is I come into the corner, that 100% does not mean I'm pinned wide open, all right? What that means is that is the maximum amount of throttle that I have at the entry of the corner. And as I enter the corner, what's gonna happen is I'm gonna slowly start decreasing my throttle, but as I decrease, I'm increasing brake pressure. So they're actually overlapping on each other. One cancels out the other one. Now obviously, if you're wide open, you just go for brakes, we're gonna have a problem. Right. So we're talking, this is a very light overlap between the two. So you're closing as you break in. That allows me to load that suspension up on the front end, but I'm still keeping tension up because while I keep tension in the driveline, it means that anti-squat geometry effect is in play because that back wheel is trying to drive forward and I'm just using a little brake against it on the front. As I come into the corner all the way to my tipping point, I get to my minimum where I have almost no brakes left. Uh, throttles all the way down, I'm at the maximum, I'm going to have a brake, that's not 80% of my total brake power. And then once I get my tip in, I start doing a bleed off. I accelerate by releasing the brake. Because I have a little power behind it still, and I have momentum forward. So as I start to bleed off the brake, the bike begins to accelerate, and then I can add throttle behind that, and I slowly bleed off the brakes as I come up. That allows to have complete and total control over the attitude of the motorcycle, the traction, but most importantly, I'm only riding as far as I can see, because we don't commit to anything other than the exit, period. Right, that's how we stay alive in corners. So this is a technique that's not taught here, uh, but I do recommend it, and I recommend starting in with, with a lighter where you do separation. Now you will find there are different definitions of trail braking and different methods. If you uh, go look up Lee Parks and you go with his method, he does what I do. He very much talks about blending of controls and overlapping, he uses different terms, but same concept. If you go to Nick Einich, Nick Einich likes to separate the two. He does one over the other, so there's no overlap on them. If you go to somebody like California Superbike School and you hang out with Dylan or Keith, you're gonna find that the codes, they don't do any trail braking at all. They believe in brake first and then only throttle. You're gonna find a lot of different methods and a lot of different theories on riding. Doesn't make theirs wrong and mine right. Mine is developed strictly for street riders for survival on the street. And that's why this method exists in, in this. And you can use it for the track as well. The other place we like to die, I mentioned not only do we die in corners, we like to die by running into cars. And if we take a look at this and we go, all right, but we stop faster than cars. And some people believe that, some believe cars stop faster, some don't have a clue. And if I ask all of you, I'll get two or three hands up in the air. So I'm just gonna give it away. These numbers, uh, these are all from Motorcycle Consumer News. They do in their own testing. These are from Car and Driver. They're the only ones that both do the same thing. They're basically 100K to zero stops. They're actually 60 to zero, so it's 97 and a half. We're just gonna say 100K for giggles. When we look at the high performers on the cars, and that's a Corvette Stingray and a Porsche 918, we're talking about 1.3. One's just over, one's just under a 1.3 G stop. Now when I mention G stops, what I'm doing is an average deceleration rate for a given speed. And that's the way I gauge. When I train riders, I don't tell you that this is the number you have to stop. And what I do is I give you a number and say, this is your, this is your ability. The reason is you can hit threshold and do a stoppy and have a very poor stopping number because it's how quickly you get to threshold and how well you track it all the way to the stop. These are professional riders, these are professional drivers. 1.3, that's 28 meters at a, at a 100 to, to 0K stop. When we look at the high performing motorcycles, you know it's number one up here is a Harley Davidson Switchback. 
We all know Harley-Davidson's are the highest performing motorcycles in the planet. Followed right behind a Ducati 1098, right? So the, obviously the 1098 is a little behind the Harley, but you know, we, we won't give um, a hard time on that. They're both twins. So if you're a twin fan, you're, in uh, you're with me on this one. Both of these stop just over 1G. You might go, why do these two motorcycles that seemingly seem to be very different, one belongs in front of a coffee shop, the other one in front of someplace else that offers beverages. Now, when you look at these, you go, why are they the same? That's because Ducatis are not made to stop. Their braking systems are not made to stop. What are they made for? Slowing, right? They're made to slow from very rapid speeds, very frequently, but not to a stop. So it turns out that their limit happens to be upset. That bike likes to stand up. That's the, the issue. The Harleys are very long, very low, perfectly suited for stopping, and they stop very, very well. Once. Now, if we go to the other end of the spectrum and look at the low-end performers, it's also Harley-Davidson at the bottom with a 0.8, which is the worst performing motorcycle in the history of motorcycles that I've ever tested. Uh, most of them stop around the 0.9 mark. So the range for most motorcycles is 0.9 to about 1G. The distance, you're talking 35 meters compared to 28 meters. I'm sure that's not a problem for any of you. And down at the bottom, we're talking uh, 40 meters down to 37. Now, the low end of the cars, we have a high-performance minivan here, because uh, I just like high-performance vehicles. And this Chry uh, Chrysler Town & Country, so we know it's got a premium package on it, right? Can stop in 125 feet, that's 38 meters, at a .96G. Now, to give you perspective, to get these stops on this side, this 0.9 to 1, we're talking professional riders, controlled environment in optimal conditions. On the other side, we're talking about my teenage daughter updating her social media while doing her makeup. That's the difference in capability. Those cars will do that stop every time. Once we add the rider into the process, those numbers change very significantly. By the way, these are all paired up, so they're equal. Uh, not in normal riding performance, but in braking performance. So it gives you a little visual on that. When we looked at numbers, the average rider stops around 0.7G. Means you're wasting roughly 30% of your braking potential on your motorcycle. So 6.5 to 7.5. At ABS, we add about 0.05. Turns out people with ABS have a little more guts, but not enough to actually use what the bike's capable of. So we severely underperform what the motorcycles are, are covered. And understanding ABS is another thing. People go, well, is this a good thing or a bad thing? So I have an illustration here. Everybody understands how ABS works, yes? Excellent, one ABS Corgi, one non. When we look at the numbers behind this, what you'll find is the ABS numbers are almost identical. Now these are 2013, 2014. Interesting enough here, 2014, Monster 1200, the ABS was never beat by the professional rider. Ever. And this is around the turning point. 2016, that's more and more common. The best you're going to do is match your ABS. Now, I am not a believer of technology over rider, but I am a huge believer in technology to support rider skill. But if you are 25 to 30% below what the bike can do, you've got a whole long ways to go. And just having somebody out there watching you, or you going, I practice my braking all the time, that's, that's just not enough, right? So it's all about choice versus consequence. Again, we die because of choices we make more than the skills we have. And we do it primarily because of fear. Fear is the issue that we have. Fear 
is what causes you to tense up when you know you should relax. Fear is what causes you to look down when you know you should look through. Fear is what causes you to not press when you should press to tighten up the curve. That's the issue. How do you control that? Fear also keeps us alive from doing really stupid things sometimes. If we stay in a cognitive control, if we stay in a thought process, we can overwhelm and control fear. Once we go into the fight or flight syndrome, we lose control. That's when we make those mistakes. You have to stay in a cognitive sense. And there's two primary things that cause this ability for fear to take over our ability to control the motorcycle. One is a sense of lack of control. The other one is a, a lack of understanding. This is where rider training comes into play. This is where self-education or talks like this come into play. The more you understand the dynamics of your motorcycle, the more you question the things you think are true, and some of them I hope I had touched on today, then the more you understand the motorcycle and the less fear can take over. You're all familiar with, uh, familiar with the great American philosopher Homer Simpson? Yes? Excellent. So Homer is where I get most of my uh, life guidance. And uh, this one particular episode I was watching, and, and this is a great message with you. So Homer's there, he's got three kids. One's a good kid, and then one's a bad kid, and then of course he's got the baby. And the good kid is? Lisa. Lisa. And the bad kid is? Excellent. In this particular episode, all the roles kind of reversed, and Lisa was getting into all kinds of trouble. Well, when Homer found out about this, he walked up and he looked at Lisa, he looked at Bart. Bart! Go to your room. Bart goes, well, what did I do? Lisa's the one that did. He goes, boy, in times of trouble, you go with what you know. And here's the message. If you train below the limit, then you practice below the limit. If you casually stop every day, when something happens, you will do a casual stop in a hurry. That's just the way it works. If you're not trail breaking and building those techniques up when you need them, they won't be there. You have to train so it's always there. This is why the military trains to run towards bullets. That's not a natural instinct, by the way. This is why firefighters practice in buildings that are on fire and they put pallets and smoke and everything else in them, because that's not a natural instinct. Which means you have to train so that these elements of riding are there when you need them. You don't need them most of the time. You need them the one time you need them. Make sense? So I have four cognitive biases that I like to share uh, with riders. Cognitive bias is a mental shortcut where we make decisions based on habits or pattern recognition or things we've heard and learned through life. Much of what we believe about motorcycling falls into this idea that we've been given information that is unquestioned or we reinforce it for different reasons. Here why, here's why a lot of the poor decisions that we make come to fruition. Number one, it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning-Kruger, anybody heard of this one before? Oh, you will now. Excellent. Dunning-Kruger. I get to tell the story quickly because I only have about three minutes to get through these. Dunning-Kruger, a gentleman decided he needed more money than he had. He decided the best place to get the money was where the banks are because the banks have all the money. But to get into the bank, he had to come up with a solution. So his solution was to become invisible. Now, what he learned was that they make invisible ink out of lemon juice. So he covered himself in lemon juice, took a picture of himself with a Polaroid, pulled out the Polaroid. The Polaroid was blank. Well, he did not question the fact that the Polaroid was blank. He just knew he wasn't on it, therefore it works. So he did a little bit of scientific testing. He then went and robbed a bank. Then he robbed another bank, and then he went home. The police were waiting for him because he had a record. Lo and behold, can you believe this? They arrested him, and they said, yep, we got you. He says, how'd you find me? Well, we saw you on the video. 
Well, how'd you find me? I was wearing the juice. That's a quote. This, uh, this kind of built into the Dunning-Kruger, who decided to do research on this, looking at cognitive bias. And what they decided was he was not crazy. He was not on drugs. So there's only a couple options left here. Now, what they found is that riders and people who know a little bit, the bottom 25% per, uh, of the performers believe that they are the best. And they will share it with everybody. Now what happened, this is a problem with us. We learn a little bit, we think we know a lot. Because the only thing you know is what you know. And if you think you know it all, you do. You know everything you know, even if it's wrong. And you don't know what you don't know until you learn what you don't know, but you still don't know what you didn't learn yet. Make sense? So this is the problem with Dunning-Kruger, is we think we know stuff, but we don't. That's a problem. You can solve it if it's uh, ignorance. Ignorance we can train out of. If you're stupid, you guys are on your own. Now the other ones we have here is uh, we've got the self-serving bias. This is just the bias that says when I win a race is because I'm really good. When I lose the race is because my tire pressure was off by two PSI, because my coffee is weak, because somebody cut me off on traffic while I was on the way here, and because you cheated. Otherwise I would have won. That's how we ride, right? We believe we're good. Think about it. You've been riding for 20 years. You never had an accident because? Exactly. Risk compensation. This is why rider training is an issue. If I make all of you better trained riders and I teach you how to corner that much better and I teach you how to break that much better, chances are you guys will all be more stupid than you were when we started. What happens is we balance our risk. Each one of us has a risk level and the more risk there is, the less risk we take. If I make you better, I take that risk away, we balance that back out. So now instead of crashing in the corner at lower speed, you're crashing to higher speed. If I want your best track time, and I send you out with all your leathers around the track and take your numbers, and then I take all of your numbers off and I make you go naked without a helmet, your numbers will change. <laughs> That's risk compensation. We have to be very wary of that as we become better, more informed riders, that we don't fill up the gap and then become more dangerous again. The last one is blind spot bias. Blind spot bias is what you're suffering from right now. Blind spot bias says, okay, that guy said they break it. They break at 0.7. Right, the average experienced rider, of course, 85% of you are not average. If I survey you, I'll find that out. Risk, this, this means that when I look at the guy next to me, I very regularly see all of his errors and problems and all of his shortcomings. His, hers. I don't see mine. And until we own the, the, the outcome of our riding, until we own how we ride and what those, those results of our decisions are, it belongs to somebody else. If we blame the other car, we are not in control of our ride. We have to change the way we think about riding. We have to think about the way we learn about riding. And if I leave anything with you today, because I'm out of time, question everything you think you know about motorcycling, research it, take classes, take training, look for credible sources, and stay the hell off of Facebook. I'm done. <laughs> Recorded live at Shiny Side Up Bike Fest in Kapiti, Brett Tanks. Thank you very much, Brett, for making the time to be at Shiny Side Up, coming all the way over from the States. If you missed out on Shiny Side Up, you definitely missed out on a, an awesome event. If you haven't listened to last week's episode with Dr. Chris Hurran from Deakin University talking about motocap and the rub of the road, go back and have another listen to that one, talking about how gear is tested. 
I hope this episode was of some use to you, breaking down some of those preconceptions that we all have about motorcycling, especially the fact that motorcycles can't necessarily brake faster than cars. Anyway, this has been another Kiwi Rider podcast episode. I've been Ray, thank you very much for listening. If you want to get hold of us, you can do so. You can email us at podcast at kiwirider.co.nz. Also jump on kiwirider.co.nz, hit that subscribe button for the latest magazine delivered every fortnight straight to your inbox absolutely free and you can follow us on instagram and facebook just search at kiwi rider and at kiwi rider podcast till next time keep the rubber side down throttle on and we'll catch you in seven days time Mm